0: Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, the authors of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Marcus Witcher and Rachel Ferguson, sit down with writer Amisha Cross to discuss what right and left both miss about black achievement in America. Author Jeff Kosseff discusses his new book, The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech. With Cato's Patrick Eddington. And for our Cato Audio exclusive, I chat with Cato's Tommy Berry and Andy Craig about how in 2024, we can avoid repeating the confusion and violence that marred the election of 2020. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. largely owing to the war in Ukraine that's uh, currently raging, NATO has been uh, making a lot of headlines in the last several months. And uh, sort of to unpack what NATO is, why it exists, and uh, what unique risks it poses, I'm speaking with uh, Doug Bandau and Justin Logan, both senior fellows at the Cato Institute. Doug, if you don't mind, I would like to start with you here. If, if NATO didn't exist and a bunch of countries uh, in Europe uh, and the United States were considering creating NATO, which basically what we have today, what would be the sales pitch?
1: Well, the sales pitch for NATO always has been Russia or the Soviet Union. It's hard to imagine any other threat. Uh, When the Soviet Union disappeared, NATO started thinking about what else it could do because everyone assumed it should remain but didn't have a very good uh, you know, understanding of what it should do at that point. Some people talked about promoting student exchanges and some people thought of other potential uses for it. But if you're thinking of it as a, a military alliance, you really have Moscow and not much else. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of
2: the peculiar things about um NATO today versus NATO say in the 1950s is that the Soviet Union in the 50s was a much more plausible threat to Europe uh to the, you know, the militarily important parts of Europe in the 1950s than Russia is today. Um but if there was a more thoroughgoing debate in the 1950s about the US contribution to NATO then, than there is about the U.S. contribution to NATO today. NATO is, as President Biden calls it, a sacred American commitment. He's used that rhetoric more than once. So this is, you know, almost a religious level of dedication. Whereas in the 1950s, for example, I think it was in 1951, Dwight Eisenhower said if NATO exists 10 years from now, it should be judged a failure. Um, And I'm currently writing a paper uh, using another Eisenhower quote as the title. Um, In 1959, Eisenhower complained that the European allies were at risk of turning Uncle Sam into Uncle Sucker, uh, which is the the title of my forthcoming paper on alliance burden sharing. So there were, you know, American leaders in the 1950s when the Soviet threat um, looked pretty scary. They were really grudging about the American commitment, whereas today, NATO is almost this sacred totem in Washington. So in terms of the promises that NATO
0: members make to each other, what are they, Doug?
1: Well, it's a collective security organization. Article 5 does not require military action, but it does require consultation and some kind of action, in theory, if there's a, a threat, uh, any member can come in. The NATO declared uh, Article 5 in operation after 9-11, even though, for the most part, uh, the, the U.S. dominated the military wars to come in Afghanistan and certainly uh, Iraq. The idea is to have a, a Europe united together militarily that can fend off any other threats, And then beyond that, it kind of it's taken on a lot of other stuff in the sense that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was pretty clear at that moment that uh, Russia was not going to be attacking Europe. So to some degree, it became the mechanism to bring in the Eastern European countries and kind of democratize them at a time where the European Union was not uh, going to do so or certainly not going to do so so quickly and it also brought in the idea of out-of-area operations, uh, you know, operations in the Balkans and Libya. So with the end of the Soviet Union, NATO started looking for other things to do rather than reconsidering whether or not it made sense to stick around. Or if uh, some collective security organization was needed, perhaps it was something different than one dominated by the United States which really was an anti-Soviet Union operation, and as Justin indicated, even Dwight Eisenhower, I mean, the supreme commander during World War II, president of the United States, first uh, military commander of NATO, was very much nervous about the creation of an organization that would encourage, frankly, what we got which was uh, cheap writing by the Europeans and turning them into permanent military dependence that uh, survived even the collapse of the enemy state for which NATO was created to fight. Uh, Justin, uh,
0: broadly speaking, uh, how does membership in NATO, or maybe vying for membership in NATO, how does that change the behavior of the countries who are Uh, involved or trying to get that all-important membership?
2: Well, I think there are different cases, really, right? So NATO has expanded since the 1950s uh, many times and four times, you know, since the end of the Cold War. I think the important uh, new members, for example, starting in 2004, are really security dependencies. And I say that not with any, you know, antipathy toward the new members, But in 2004, for example, when the Baltic states were admitted, um, I'll just use this as an example. You know, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania joined in 2004. NATO did not have any plan for the defense of the Baltic states until 2010, um, when the Baltic states, very understandably after the Russian invasion of Georgia, um, really insisted that NATO come up with some sort of defense plan (laughs) for them. Um, But these are countries with little over a million citizens in some cases, right? Um, Very small uh, economies and tremendous geographic vulnerability to Russia. And so I think NATO has had this Janus face where on the one hand, when you're talking about expanding to countries that are largely militarily indefensible, NATO is just a sort of, um, it's not a hard-nosed military alliance about defending against Russia. Then when there's a security problem in uh, Europe or near one of these states, it reverts to that serious military alliance. And so I think this kind of strategy of sort of hiding the ball. Um, Ideally, you'd want to have a plan for the defense of a treaty ally before you make them a treaty ally, right? And I'll steal a phrase from, you know, uh, 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 one of my former colleagues here um, that, you know, the, the arrangement in NATO now is that we agree to defend our allies and they agree to let us, right? And that is not a great proposition for the American taxpayer, right? So it's, you know, the the problem here is that the military, you want to go back to after World War II. What were we worried about during World War II and the aftermath of World War II? The United States didn't want a European hegemon, right? It didn't want one country to dominate Europe because that would threaten the United States. Russia cannot dominate Europe. It's having a hell of a time beating up on poor Ukraine, right, with which it shares a huge border. That it outguns dramatically. So the idea that Russia is going to dominate Europe is just a fantasy. The militarily important parts of Europe, France, Germany, even Poland are quite safe. That being the case, right, I think it's important to point out that the act of expanding NATO, there's a great quote here from Glenn Snyder, an alliance scholar, that he said, alliances create not only obligations, but also new strategic interests beyond those that may have existed before the alliance. So now you hear American scholars say, it's a vital interest of the United States to defend Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania from Russia, where on its own terms, you could ask yourself, I like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania fine, but should we be willing to risk nuclear war with Russia for their defense? Is that a national security interest for the United States? I think quite clearly there, the answer is no, but the act of bringing them into the alliance has caused them to be treated as a vital national security interest for the United States. And I think that's actually quite dangerous.
0: So in the specific context of, uh, Ukraine, uh, what was you know? Ukraine was a country that appeared to have a strong interest in joining NATO. Uh, in fact, it was I think portrayed on a on a uh, sitcom starring Vladimir Zelensky uh, at one point of uh, a joke, fo- a phone call that he received where uh, he was he thought he was being uh, told he was joining NATO, but uh, was the phone call was actually intended for a different uh, uh, national leader. <laughs> Um. So, with specific uh, reference to Ukraine, what, how, how has their calculus different? Uh, are they in a better or worse position for uh, trying to attempt to join this this alliance? And uh, why has it been so difficult for them?
1: Well, I would defi- I would basically separate pre twenty fourteen Ukraine from post twenty fourteen Ukraine. Pre-2014, Ukraine was a very divided country. Ukraine is historically put together uh, with parts that were largely ethnic Russian, uh, Orthodox uh, religion, with uh, after World War I, Galicia, uh, which was much more independent, Catholic, uh, parts had been ruled by Austro-Hungary. So its voting patterns reflected that. And if you looked at the people elected, and I mean, the, you know, Yushenko and Yanukovych and Timoshenko and all these people, typically it was East versus West. It was relatively pro-Russian versus relatively anti-Russian. These are complicated. But, you know, some folks were more likely to be Russian speakers. They identified more with Russia. They traded more with Russia. So the support for going into NATO was not uniform. Uh, that what you found was an awful lot of the folks in the East with a greater identification with Russia had no great desire to do so. And even some of the folks who weren't as thrilled with Russia realized that it would antagonize Moscow and probably wasn't a good idea. And you go up to Yanukovych, who was thrown out in 2014 as part of the the Maidan Revolution, Even at that moment of the revolution, I mean, there were polls at the time that showed 50% were against it, 45% for, that again, you had the divided country, uh, that the protesters in the streets were largely folks who were much more independence-minded, more kind of from the West as opposed to the the folks in the East who were more pro-Russian. What pushed kind of enthusiasm for uh, NATO was after 2014 with Russia's seizure of uh, Crimea and intervention in the Donbass, you know, that in 2018, when uh, Yushenko was in charge, who was very anti-Russian, and uh, George W. Bush was in charge, someone quite willing to make uh, risky and dangerous foreign policy moves like Iraq, you know, the Bush administration pushed very hard to get NATO to bring Georgia and Ukraine in, Most of the Europeans were uh, horrified, but uh, also not wanting to uh, totally offend the president of the United States. So they agreed to a formulation that eventually these two countries should come in, which most of them interpreted as never. Uh, The problem is they spent the next eight years at every opportunity saying, well, we look forward to eventually bringing you in, even though none of them had any intention of doing so. And that has helped cause our current problem, which is the Ukrainians after 2014, understandably, would have preferred to have been protected by the United States when Russia had taken military action against them. But that military action, which was ongoing in the Donbass, I mean, that conflict continued in the intervening years, made it inconceivable that uh, they would actually come into NATO. But no one in NATO was honest enough to tell them that this wasn't going to happen, and uh, there, I think the Russians, Moscow, heard that we wanted to bring them in rather than paying attention to this kind of nuance that you would understand if you were part of the Washington policy process, that it probably wasn't going to happen. Uh, today, you're, you're, Ukrainians would love to be in NATO because they'd love to have America behind them. In the end, from their standpoint, defense by America is the best thing they could have.
0: Uh, Justin, you mentioned uh, that alliances create their own sort of strategic and other interests. And it seems that uh, for the United States, at least, being able to get countries to behave in ways that the United States wants is a strategic benefit of being so uh, financially uh, and otherwise
2: invested in NATO. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people in Washington think that. Um, I mean, I think it's important to keep in the front of your mind that NATO is first and foremost a vehicle for US domination of European security. That's just, you could think that's a good thing, you could think that's a bad thing, but it's a fact. Um, And so the question becomes, what is that worth to the United States? What is it worth having really outsized influence over European security for the United States? Um, And I think in the early Biden administration, you heard a grudging realization that autonomous European security capabilities might be good for the United States. So Jake Sullivan gave some quotes about it and said, well, it depends a lot on the details and I don't like the term strategic autonomy, um, but there are things that Europe could do that we would like. And it's important to point out that that's a sea change from the way the United States behaved in the 1990s and behaved in the 2000s, right? Madeleine Albright gave a famous speech at Saint-Malo in France saying that the United States would oppose anything that would decouple, uh, discriminate, or duplicate NATO capabilities. So this was back in the days of ESDI, um, the sort of fledgling European autonomous security effort. Um, and we vehemently opposed that. In 2003, we sent Nicholas Burns to Brussels to say that autonomous European security capabilities would pose, quote, a grave threat to the transatlantic relationship, not a grave threat to NATO, not a grave threat to you know these institutions, but to the relationship between the United States on the one hand and Europe on the other these were bad ideas um, that were held broadly in the United States. Um, And there's been some shift. Again, it's not just Sullivan's remarks um, in the early Biden administration, but there was a report from the Center for American Progress, a sort of mainstream democratic think tank that a couple of years ago that said, you know, European security should be a thing. Um, And I think that there are all sorts of reasons to be skeptical of the European ability to get their act together on security, right? There's a real disconnect between the UK and some of the Eastern Europeans, for example, Poland and the Baltic States, for example, who really favor NATO. Um, and, you know, France has sort of been leading the charge. We had the French ambassador at Cato in December to talk about strategic autonomy. Um, so I, I think there, are, there there's a lot of inertial reason to be skeptical about the European ability to get their act together. And. Instead of encouraging that and trying to get them to work beyond those obstacles and beyond that inertia, we were sort of stepping on their heads in the 1999s and in the 2000s. And that goes to show the extent to which U.S. policymakers wanted to dominate European security. I just think that was a bad idea. And I think grudgingly, US policymakers have come to understand that there was a bad idea. But now what the United States has done in the wake of the Ukraine war is instead of letting that sort of shock therapy moment cause some panic, and some anxiety um, in Europe, we've sent 20,000 more US troops to Eastern Europe to uh, reassure our European allies and really to reimpose the United States at the center of US security. So, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, the Germans set up a 100 billion euro defense fund and said that they would be spending 2% of GDP on defense, which is a huge sea change, right? The, the term that the Germans used was Zeitenwende, which is which sort of translated as new era um, or watershed moment. And so people like me said, this is great. Uh, But that was, of course, before the United States stuck another 20,000 troops in Eastern Europe. Well, lo and behold, now that the United States has done that, the Germans have said, well, the 100 billion euros, which is to be spent over the next four years, will get us to 2% of GDP. But, oh, by the way, we're cutting our base budget behind that. And in 2026, um, the spending will actually have gone down. So this is, you know, these countries are savvy about international politics. And if we're giving them free money or free defense, they're not going to turn it down. The question is, if we stop giving them free money and free defense, what will they do? And I think the initial Zeitung suggests that they will step up if forced to do so. And the question is whether the United States can and will force them to do so. And I think it's terribly unfortunate and a terrible distraction from things that are actually vitally important to the United States that we continue to be distracted um, by, you know, uh, uh, this question of dominating European security. I just think it is a it is a real uh, indictment of the ability of the United States to focus um, on the important problems that uh, that face the country. Uh,
0: to whoever wants it, how does the United States, let's assume uh, Joe Biden has a, uh, as Gene Healy might put it, Gabriel in the White House moment, where he wakes up tomorrow and decides, you know, these uh, entangling alliances aren't uh, so great for the United States, folks. Um, what would it look like for the United States to begin to try to uh, disinvest both financially and with these various promissory notes that the United States has been so free with?
2: There are lots of things that the United States could do. Um, Historically, the supreme allied commander in Europe, the so-called SACUR, has always been an American. and His deputy has been a European. The United States should say, the next SACUR is going to be a European we're not going to put anyone forward. We want to see a European. This would be a cataclysm in transatlantic affairs, admittedly, but you know what? It's time for the Europeans to get their act together. Um, And so the next year is going to be a European, point one. Point two, the 20,000 US troops that went into Eastern Europe in the wake of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war are going to come back out. We have a plan for taking them out. And not just that, Um, But the United States is going to begin again the withdrawal of about 15,000 troops from Germany uh, that President Trump suggested and President Biden undid. And finally, I think there are some ways to get the politics lined up in the United States. The Department of Defense from 1982 through about 2003 had to issue a periodic report entitled Allied Contributions to the Common Defense. And the Defense Department was tasked with looking at just that, allied contributions to the common defense. What ended up happening normally was the Department of Defense acted as a lawyer for America's allies by saying, look, if you look at things differently or if you use different methodologies, our allies are actually doing quite a lot. But it provided ammunition and a sort of jumping off point for legislators to say, geez, does it really make sense that we're spending double as a percent of GDP what some of these pretty vulnerable allies are spending? And finally, and this is an opportunity for Doug to sort of uh, peacock a little bit. In 1988, the House Armed Services Committee uh, held a uh, panel on defense burden sharing. Uh, To which Doug, among other dignitaries such as Gene Kirkpatrick and one Richard Pearl, uh, contributed. And there was really a quorum, I think, in that report, which is good reading, um, that, you know, something needed to change, that these countries weren't going to do more uh, while we were doing it for them. And of course, in 1989, the beginning of the end of the Cold War started. um, So that really took the wind out of the sails of that project. But there are all sorts of things that policymakers could do that are not the boorish kind of like Trump elbowing the head of state of Montenegro out of the way at the photo op at NATO. Um, There are all sorts of things that a reasonable non-mercenary policymaker could do to get this process in motion.
1: What's critical here is that the U.S. needs to stop reassuring its allies and making clear to them that the U.S. will always be there. What's very odd is that successive presidents and secretaries of defense and uh, of state have all said they want the Europeans to do more, but then the U.S. would send officials over to reassure the allies. We would even create, Congress even created a program called the Reassurance Initiative, which they finally changed to the Deterrent Initiative. But that makes no sense because, of course, you're telling the Europeans, we'd like you to do more, but don't worry, we'll always be there even if you don't. And I think there are a number of steps. We could say, for example, it's perfectly fine the Baltics want some troops on station, but we think those should be British troops and uh, German troops and maybe a few Italians, that there already are enough Americans in Europe. And certainly, as as Justin indicated, we should be pulling out the 20,000 that we've added uh, since I think it was April and we've got to make clear to them that we are expecting this that uh, you know the US will judge its future commitment to europe and future cooperation with the europeans to their willingness to step up and complete their plans and fulfill their promises i mean the promise to do spend 2% which it's it's an arbitrary figure but nevertheless at least it's something measurable is one for a lot of countries it's kind of asymptotic you know they almost they get always get closer but never quite there and the date at which they promise to be there always changes and i think the u.s has got to turn this around to say focus on how we are busy elsewhere you know we're still stuck in the middle east and china is an issue of great importance to the united states and as much as people might talk about having nato involved with china No one imagines that we're going to see an armada from Europe with a deployable army and air force to boot to go fight the Chinese. That if there's conflict in Asia, we all know who everyone's going to call. It won't be the Europeans, that the U.S. can no longer afford this. You look at America's budget, you look at the debt, we're already approaching the record set after World War II of 106%. Congressional Budget Office figures we could be at 200% by 2050. Interest rates are going up. That means that federal interest payments are going to be skyrocketing. You know, that the U.S. has to shift this burden. We know where it needs to be shifted onto the Europeans.
0: You know, based largely on what you just said, Doug, it strikes me that there might be some, I don't know, skepticism that the United States actually would come to aid. Uh, European countries, should they, even if they're NATO members in good standing, paying all their dues, uh, you know, is is there any indication from within those countries that maybe we actually should be more concerned about this, these promises that um, the United States has so generously supported financially?
1: Well, there certainly is nervousness among the countries that are potentially most vulnerable. Think of the Baltic states and Poland. And it's one reason why they all would like to have U.S. troops there. Their presumption is a permanent deployment would act like a tripwire, which would help ensure American involvement. If there's no U.S. tripwire, I think they do, especially the Baltic states, because physically it becomes difficult to defend them. And that might change a bit with Finland and Sweden coming in, but I still have problems imagining they will be rushing to the aid of the Baltic countries. And I think that is the best evidence that these countries want a tripwire from America, not other European countries. They want an American tripwire as the only way to ensure that we'll be there. Justin,
0: what are the likely scenarios for uh, the future of NATO and what do you hope is the uh, scenario bounded by reality of what uh, NATO could be down the road?
2: Well, what is likely to happen isn't good, and what's good isn't likely to happen. Let me leave it with that. Um, I think NATO has been reinvigorated. Uh, I think the United States has chosen to use Russia's invasion of Ukraine as an opportunity to reinstate NATO, to, to, to infuse NATO with some new life. Um, It has expanded now, or will have expanded soon, likely, to include Finland and Sweden. I think one thing that is underrated about that aspect is that it's going to put real wind in the sails of the nuclear budget. So we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars conservatively over the next several decades to modernize the nuclear weapons of the United States. Um, And now we have a much larger piece of dirt to extend nuclear deterrence over. Um, If we to include Finland, Sweden. So that's going to be a a, a real subject of discussion. Um, And I think what you know, what should happen, what should have happened was, again, sort of cultivating this anxiety, right? If, if, If threat is a combination of capability and intentions. On the one hand, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has showed that the cap- Russian capability is in fact as great as many people feared. But Russian intentions are pretty bad. Vladimir Putin's pretty
3: expansive,
2: pretty belligerent guy. Um, and it's quite likely that the system uh, that he put in place will replace him with somebody who's also kind of a bad guy and also kind of belligerent. So I think letting that um, belligerent Russia inflame some of the fears of European states and telling them European security is for Europeans first and foremost, right? The United States will will swoop in to save the day if it looks like Russia poses a danger like Nazi Germany did or like we feared the Soviet Union would. But beyond that, this is your problem. This is your region. I think the Europeans could have handled that with aplomb. And, you know, the East Europeans will say, look, um, you know, we wouldn't be satisfied with Germany and France's vision of how to defend the Baltic states. Um, and th- that's perfectly fair for them to say. Um, but they're not the 51st, second and third states. Right. Um, this is, you know, they're, they're foreign countries that have their own prerogatives. And, you know, um, that's on them. And I think disentangling this commitment Um is a a huge task for a very competent, very committed presidential administration. Um, And we had that, and I think it will be a challenge in the years to come. But I want to endorse Doug's statement that we have reached the point that there are trade-offs. This is not 2004. The defense budget is not going to $1.2 or $1.3 or $1.5 trillion a year anytime soon. So, there are really trade offs between among the things that we do overseas and between the things that we do overseas and the things we do or don't do at home. And I think it's time for policymakers to wake up to that reality and start acting like it.
0: All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Doug Bendow and Justin Logan, senior fellows at the Cato Institute. And of course, you can read all of our scholars' writings on NATO, the war in Ukraine, and China at our website, cato.org. The experiences of Black Americans do not fit neatly into our nation's political culture. In the new book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, authors Marcus Witcher and Rachel Ferguson argue that those on the right fail to acknowledge the gravity of past injustices and rights violations, while those on the left ignore decades of failed paternalism and unintended consequences of government policy. But there is an alternative, they say. Classical liberalism, a philosophy based on free markets, individual rights, and vibrant civil society. The authors sat down with commentator Amisha Cross to make their case.
4: Very happy to be here with both Marcus and Rachel. You guys did an amazing job with this book. Um, We cannot underscore that enough. It is a very thorough and, quite frankly, um, in-depth vision of and understanding of Black America, not only in terms of history, but also up through present day, one in which even those of us who have grown up in those communities, who are of that community and have been through that school system, quite frankly, don't always get as in depth as that. So just giving you that off the top. Thank you. With that being said, we were missed to say that we are not in the midst of um, celebrating Juneteenth. So there couldn't have been a better time for this to be hosted. So thank you to Cato for that. There are several things within this book that I found quite profound and the ways that you state them as well as the examples that you utilize. One of the top things for me is looking at black America as well as the vision of America as a whole. When we talk about the American dream, there are all of these idealistic goals. There is this, um, this euphoria of sorts about being American and what that means and the promise and the future that it holds. Something that has largely been kept away from black America, quite frankly, since our inception in this country. With that being said, a great deal of what you talk about is within the business ownership entrepreneurship space. As you, as you know, uh, business ownership and entrepreneurship has been such a large and impactful part of the black community for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, the only way that many black Americans are ever able to compete or have any extent of capital for their own families and communities. But with that being said, there are just so many impediments to actually owning your own business, building that, as well as getting the capital to get it started, and avoiding some of the pitfalls that, quite frankly, government institutions have put in place when it comes to Black business and Black business ownership. Currently, Black women hold the most Black businesses of any demographic in the country. However, the gains, the potential gains of that, have not been seen. Black women are also the population that has the least amount of wealth in this country. From your your book, you speak about entrepreneurship as this gateway to opportunity, but also as one that has been built over time um, as it relates to Black people being able to have to have access. Mm -hmm. How do you translate that into what is being seen today? Because entrepreneurship is continually pressed throughout the community. That's Mm -hmm. something that, um, regardless of what party you stand for, entrepreneurship is something that I feel as though the black community definitely jumps a hold of. But with that being said, they aren't necessarily seeing those same gains, even though the numbers in terms of black entrepreneurship are there.
5: Yeah, me? Um, Yeah, so we first take a look at some of the policy issues that we could address, and that's in the economic freedom section. Uh, We draw a lot on Michael Tanner's book, The Inclusive Economy, which I highly recommend. Uh, There's so many things about the way our system is set up that rewards people who are already established, who are already rich, and is hard on people who are trying to start. Uh, For instance, we reward rich people for saving, but we punish poor people for saving. So if you try to save something up, you're, you, will, you will lose certain benefits, right? And there's a lot of little things like that, um, uh, you know, stacked policies that we could change to really change the incentive structure. We also look at things like occupational licensing reform. Um, these small businesses don't need more hoops to jump through. A middle class person may take for granted that, you know, yeah, it takes weeks and weeks to get this done, right? And... I have to ask five friends to help me fill out this paperwork, but no big deal. I can get it done. But imagine if you're an inner-city entrepreneur. You may not have those five friends. You may not have weeks and weeks before you need that you can wait before you start making a profit. And so we need to lower all of those sorts of regulatory barriers for people who want to start their own businesses. And a great example was the Tennessee law in which barbers had to have a high school diploma. Why? What does... What does having a high school diploma have to do with being good at cutting hair? Nothing. But what you see is really crony capitalism, right? cronyism, in which rent seeking, whatever you want to call it, privilege seeking, in which established, notice, a local salon doesn't have to be a big business. They could be a small business, but they're an established business. So the established business can go and say, hey, don't they have to have a a high school diploma? You need to add that. doesn't that African hair braider have to go to cosmetology school so that she has to work at my salon and I get to take off the top you know, from her profits? Well, no, she shouldn't have to do that. And so we have to fight really hard in our state legislatures uh, and at the local level to make sure that we're removing every barrier we possibly can. But I also want to return to that point about neighborhood stabilization to say, you know, sometimes we can't wait we can't wait for those barriers to come down my friend shamed dogan in missouri worked on african hairbraining for years before he got that removed so what do we have to do we have to come up from below bring our own networks and our own resources into the inner city entrepreneurs and help lift them up above the barriers right by by giving them the bandwidth that we have so part of that is philanthropic but then i just want to end by reminding everyone and i'm always really careful to say this of black America is above the poverty line. The majority of black Americans are middle class. They are on their way, right? And so black Americans are tracking in terms of income, not caught up in terms of wealth, which is more complicated, so we can talk about that. But when I'm talking about things like neighborhood stabilization, I'm talking about those who have been left behind, those who are stuck economically. Most of black America is not stuck uh, economically, and that's important to say.
4: No, absolutely, I'm glad that you added that context. Um, for the re-entry population, Marcus, um, which is a population that happens to, in many cases, be stuck by no fault of their own. Um, the idea of reentry is that you paid your debt to society, so you come out and now you're able to go back into that society. Um, and there are significant barriers, whether you're finding housing issues, in many cases, even getting a driver's license, getting access to your personal documents, identification documents. But the biggest barrier is actually job access. So we see that there are more people who have reentered society who get all the doors slammed in their faces when they're trying to apply for jobs. Um, So they have taken the entrepreneurship on in a much different way because the idea is that they cannot apply for and actually get accepted to traditional work even those who have, had, um, who have had education while they were in, in, in prison or in any other form of deti- detention. So they have credentials, but they're still not able to get jobs. Mm-hmm. For those individuals who have different barriers to job access, what does entrepreneurship look like? And how, has, how have states, or how do you think states should manage that? Because this is a significant population of individuals who come out of jails or prison systems every year, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, have no place else to turn.
3: Yeah, as a historian, I'm much more comfortable talking about the ways in which we got to where we are rather than talking about certain sort of prescriptions. I generally leave those for Rachel to sort of prescribe what we should do today. Um, But having said that, I think there's been a lot of good work done, and surprisingly, in some southern states, right? States like Texas, uh, Kansas, one of the... Uh, Georgia, Georgia, Kansas, Oklahoma. um, uh, You know, to try and... you know, attack sort of the mass incarceration mm-hmm. crisis and try and help people as they transition into sort of normal life. And I think one of the things that we try to do in the book is we want to speak to conservatives in a way that says, listen, these are past injustices. Whether we use the term social justice, or we just try to use the term past injustice. These are past injustices that we need to address. They're wrongs that were done, Um, and to try and give them a vocabulary and speak in a way that will get them to recognize that there is a problem with mass incarceration. I think that we see that happening already, right? It's already beginning to happen, and the numbers are beginning to fall. Um, As far as sort of what we can do for those folks to help them re-enter, Rachel, do you have any specific ideas on, like, policies that can be pursued? Yeah, so
5: one of the things we do in the book is we try to direct you to other great books, um, and we're drawing on those, and those who are interested in particular issues can go deeper, And so one of the ones we look at is uh, Ending Over Criminalization and Mass Incarceration by Anthony Bradley. And the subtitle is Hope from Civil Society. Because what he's saying is, look, you have a government-run prison system, so it's terrible, right? It makes things worse rather than better. The only hope you're going to have is from civil society. And so he goes through many examples of Groups that came in and made sure that kids didn't go into juvenile de- uh, you know, delinquency in the first place, right? Um, so that they didn't get into that uh, crime cycle. Uh, the Groups that met uh, prisoners six months before they got out, right? And started making sure that they were making the transition. Um, business people who were actually bringing work into the prisons with real wages, not just the federal wages, right? With real wages. I mean, these guys were getting on the phone to do their homework with their kids because they could afford to pay for the call, because they had a real job in the prison. I mean, really creative stuff. And then of course, to go back to neighborhood stabilization, getting these kids before they ever get there, Mm. right? And so finding these kids when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, not taking them out of their neighborhood, bringing opportunities into the neighborhood, the community gardens, right? The woodworking, the lawn mowing, so that a kid by 13, 14, 15 years old is already getting paid and knowing how to show up to work and be responsible and deal with it when they don't feel like it and all of the things that are just hard about being a teenager, right? And so that that kid is already on their way to school or job rather than into the gang life, which is in many cases almost inevitable in some neighborhoods. And so it's really important to go back to the root as well.
0: Marcus Witcher and Rachel Ferguson are authors of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Amisha Cross is an activist, political commentator and writer. Why did those opposed to, or in favor of, the Constitution write under pseudonyms? Why did Occupy Wall Street protesters wear Guy Fawkes masks? Why do so many people seek to maintain a level of anonymity in their online activities, including web surfing and posting on social media? In the debate over the right to conceal one's identity versus the potential harms of anonymity, is it possible to strike a constitutionally sound balance? In his latest book, The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shape Online Speech, Jeff Kossif tackles these and other questions. He sat down with Cato's Patrick
6: Eddington in June. Why this book on this topic at this particular time?
7: Well, first, thanks so much for having me. And I have to give the uh, quick disclaimer that everything I say is only on my behalf and not the DOD, the Navy or the Naval Academy. Um, so with that said, the reason I got interested in this book a few years ago, it was really right after my Section 230 book uh, was published in 2019, that one of the big defenses that I heard over and over when I was writing about Section 230 for 230 was that uh, all Section 230 does is it says that you can't sue the platform, but you can always sue the poster. But I knew just from my experience, uh, both practicing law and researching the book, that that wasn't always true, that there's a wide variety of reasons that people that you can't necessarily sue the poster. Uh, they might be using su- technology that's sufficient to anonymize them. They might take operational safeguards like uh, using their neighbors on secured Wi-Fi. Uh, or even if they could be identified by their IP address, uh, the, what I found particularly interesting was this line of cases going back more than two decades now where courts have uh, said that there's a strong First Amendment right, not absolute, but a strong right in uh, being able to separate someone's name and identifying information from the communications that they're providing. And so that just seemed weird enough to me because i kind of like writing about really weird things like section 230 and so i thought well how did that come to be and so i started researching and going back and into cases from the 1950s involving the naacp and seeing that they relied on the federalist papers and common sense so that made me think that this seems uh interesting enough and important for today's debates that it was worth writing a
6: book about i have to say jeff I had never heard of Junius. Uh, Can we spend a couple of minutes on Junius to kind of help us understand really kind of the background? I think one of the big background pieces, essentially in the very start of your book uh, that acts as a, I think a very persuasive hook as to why anonymity is so important.
7: Yeah. So I I think of Junius as sort of the original troll. Uh, So he or she, there, there was some writing indicating that Junius was a he, um was wrote letters to the editor of the uh public advertiser newspaper in london in the uh in the 1700s uh very critical of uh king george iii and very uh supportive of the colonies and he had a very sharp pen uh much sharper than anything you would see on twitter today. Um, And unfortunately for him, uh, the criminal defamation law was quite different (laughs) back then uh, in both England and and the United States. Uh, But so he took great care to be anonymous, signed every letter Junius. Uh, There were all of these really intricate operational safeguards like leaving, uh, having three different drop off points for the letters before they got to the editor, editor of the paper. Uh, having there's at least some evidence based on analysis that Junius actually had someone else or different people copy his handwriting of the letter before sending it off to the newspaper, so people couldn't tra- trace back handwriting samples. And uh, but but he uh, and he had a big impact. He uh, he criticized the prime minister to the point where that led to his resignation, or it was one of one of the leading causes of it. And, uh, but then he wrote a very direct letter to the king, which although Junius couldn't be identified, the publisher Woodfall uh, was tried for seditious libel. And uh, there was not a verdict for uh, the government. And then there was a mistrial. So there, there was no actual conviction, but it just sort of shows the jeopardy that Junius was in at the time. And to this day, there's no definitive consensus as to who Junius is. There's one candidate uh, who who people, many historians believe was Junius, but there's others who believe other people were. Uh, So we we really do not know. So even then, Junius was able to conceal his identity to this day.
6: That is some absolutely outstanding intelligence tradecraft, I will have to say. I think that I think Junius could have taught my former colleagues at the Central Intelligence Agency a few things, quite frankly. Um, You know, I want to stay in that particular era for a minute because it is directly relevant um, uh, to the American experience. And I uh, I love the fact that you spent a fair amount of time talking about essentially Publius and and the Federalist Papers and essentially this, this conspiracy for all intents and purposes to create an entirely different form of government. Uh, by three guys who were basically writing uh, anonymously you know tell us how much of an impact ultimately does that have in helping to kind of shape the nature uh, and the practice of anonymity in America from that, po- uh, that point forward
7: well so I, in america the sort of the traditions of junius really carried over Juni- there, there were other examples in england and that really carried over to thomas Paine uh publishing common sense under a pseudonym or anonymous fully anonymously um and he included some explanation and about why he did that basically to focus on the argument and i mean even within months he he was uh his name was associated with it but at the time of publication it was not uh for and his motivations were different from Junius because at the time, uh, it was highly unlikely that Thomas Paine would have been prosecuted, but uh, there was much more of a speech focus to his reasons for anonymity. And the same for the Federalist Papers, Uh, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, they, uh, I mean, this was uh, after independence, this was to uh, support the ratification of the constitution. And the best that, they, they did not leave A great deal of documentation as to the reasons why they wrote under publius rather their names but the best guess based on what they had written is that they again wanted to separate their identities and whatever baggage that might be associated with those identities from the arguments that they that they were making and they they told a very small group of associates at the time that they were behind it some people speculated especially as to hamilton but um, they, I mean, they took great care even when they talked to different people about it. Uh, they occasionally wrote in cipher. So they again, wanted to take some pretty great operational safeguards to protect their identities.
0: Jeff Kosseff is author of The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The election of 2024 is closer than you think. And it's important that the United States make clear exactly how a new president is to be selected so the same kind of electoral chicanery doesn't happen again. Cato's Tommy Berry and Andy Craig have written extensively about reforms to the Electoral Count Act. This discussion is a Cato Audio exclusive. As of this recording, I believe the January 6th committee is beginning to wind down uh, its work. I just happened to watch a lengthy segment of these hearings in prime time just last night, and they lay out a pretty detailed story of uh, what President Trump was doing that day. And of course, all of this confusion, we'll generously call it confusion, about the uh, process of selecting a new president uh, really came into sharp relief. And uh, what that implicates is, of course, the Electoral Count Act, a piece of legislation that was passed following another contested election with a lot of uh, vagaries involved. So, uh, Tommy Berry, if you don't mind, give us a sense of why the Electoral Count Act was necessary to begin with.
8: Sure. So from a big picture point of view, I the statute, I think of it as gap filling, filling the gaps in the constitution um, that don't spell out all of the procedures in detail for how we transition from uh, one presidency to the next and decide who in fact has won the electoral college. So the 12th amendment is the current operative text in the constitution. It basically describes in pretty distinct detail how the electors meet and vote and send their votes to Congress. Uh, But then it just says the votes shall be opened and, and counted in the passive voice. So what the Electoral Count Act does is it fills in a more detailed procedure for how does that count happen. It happens by state alphabetically, uh, and most controversially, it lays out a procedure for both houses of Congress to decide. Actually, this paper that we received should not be treated as a valid and countable vote. Um, and that's where we saw controversy uh, in, during the most recent count. Was some Republican senators and members of Congress wanted to use the Electoral Count Act to discount? Um, votes from from some states and that's uh, what a lot of the current debate is about is about can those procedures be tightened and can ambiguities be removed uh to make it clear when and when not uh, that would be appropriate all right i want to
0: uh... Apologize to our listeners. That was Thomas A. Berry, uh, a research fellow at the Cato <laughs> Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, to you, uh, Andy Craig. In terms of the vagaries and and getting this done, I know that in in my previous conversations with uh, Tommy and Walter Olson about uh, the Electoral Count Act and reforming it, time really seemed to be seems to be of the essence. That is, before a lot of uh, partisan brain takes over. And people decide whether or not this reform or that reform will hurt their guy or the other guy. Uh, Give us sort of the big picture sense of of where you think clarity ought to uh, reign in uh, Mm -hmm. making changes to this act.
9: I mean, certainly one of the big changes that needs to be made is spelling out Uh, how to handle on the one hand, if you have a state level official, the governor or somebody like that, that tries to go crazy. All right. Who can stop that? How do we override that? And then on the other end, it's how do you stop Congress from going crazy and, and limit their ability to do something that would be wild and unconstitutional in terms of refusing to count votes that should be counted, um, So, what this does is it's kind of an exercise in Madisonian checks and balances. You have the states, you have the federal courts, and you have Congress, and they each check each other uh, throughout this process. And the goal of Electoral Count Act reform is to to end, end a lot of the ambiguities because this law, as it was passed in 1887, is an insane piece of writing. It has... 300 word long run-on sentences and it contradicts itself. It is a terribly written piece of legislation that we have on the books from 1887 and so you know ab- aside from the substantive changes one of the most important things is to just go back and rewrite it so that it's it's in fluent English
0: Tommy can you give me like a for instance a what if uh, on how,
8: the present state of affairs could really mess things up sure um so one of the problems under the current act and one of the the uh, nightmare scenarios people have talked about is the so-called rogue governor scenario where uh, the process plays out in a state courts resolve any disputes the uh, you know board of elections certifies someone as the winner but then the governor says no i disagree I think there was fraud, I'm going to certify the other person as the winner, and I'm going to have that slate of electors send their votes to Congress. And essentially, what do you do about that? And under the current law, arguably, you could have competing slates, kind of the nightmare scenario of both electors claim to be the true winners, send their slates to Congress, Congress has to pick which one. And if the House and Senate disagreed, uh, the governor would get the tiebreaker, seemingly over the courts. So one thing that this draft bill we've seen does well is it eliminates that. It says, no, uh, the most recent decision by the courts takes precedence over the governor's decision. The governor has to issue a certificate. Uh, that complies with uh, the most recent decision of the courts, and Congress has to treat that as uh, as final.
9: One important point about all this is even though this is kind of seen as a response to what happened in 2020 and what Donald Trump tried to do, uh, it's really a, a very kind of originalist defending the Constitution thing. Um, the, at Philadelphia, the framers very specifically rejected letting Congress pick the president. Um, that's not what it's supposed to be. That's why we have this whole kind of pop-up fourth branch of government, the electoral college that comes into existence for this one purpose of electing the president. Um, and there's some specific rules they have to follow, like a member of Congress can't be an elector. They have to vote for people who are constitutionally eligible. Um, but within that, Who the states say they pick as their electors is definitive as adjudicated uh, and through the courts as a matter of state law. And then who the electors vote for is definitive. Congress does not have a blank check here to say, no, we don't like the results. We prefer Trump over Biden or vice versa. Um, and one thing, you know, we've brought up to to some of the Republicans we've talked to is imagine, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, once again, a uh, Democrat has won the national popular vote but lost the Electoral College. And if there's Democratic majorities in Congress, do you want them to be able to say, all right, we're just going to throw out enough votes to flip the result because we think that's what the right outcome should be? Um, so this is really not a, a super partisan issue. That's one of the things that's been kind of fun to work on it, is that everybody's kind of behind the veil of ignorance. They don't know which party is going to have the vice president. They don't know which party is going to have Congress or be the apparent winner uh, from the the results in the states. So this this is really a kind of, you get to do the, the ideal abstract, let's design it based on we could be on either side of this. Andy, part of the reason that
0: clarity seems so important here is because time is of the essence. You know, you have an election or a a few election days uh, now as voting has expanded uh, since uh, 2016. And at a certain point, the state makes its determination and that's it. And then the uh, electors go to Washington and the votes are counted and that's it. These are these become facts, uh, notwithstanding any complaints. So, in in terms of trying not to stretch this out, which of course the Trump team was trying to do, trying to extend uh, the uh, counting of votes so that they could then uh, challenge in at the state level. What what does the reform that we've seen presented uh, this bipart- so called bipartisan reform? Uh, what does it do, and uh, how, you know, how much does it address the concerns that you and and Tommy have raised about the problems of our current methods for selecting a president?
9: Well, one of the important things it does is it clarifies um, who has the say uh, during each stage of the timeline. Um, One of the most important changes this makes and that we've promoted a lot is that it it, several times throughout the proposed bill, it has uh, it refers to state law enacted prior to Election Day. So each state can pick its electors however they want. Um, That's up to the legislature. They don't have to even have an election, even though that's what every state has always done for a long time. Um, But the deadline for them to do that is Congress's time uh, Set the time of choosing electors under the Constitution, and that's Election Day. And so, what this does is it clarifies something that uh, has come up in terms of the arguments Trump's people were making in 2020, which is the legislature has no further say in it after after Election Day. The state legislature, Uh, you cannot go back and change the rules in December. There's no do overs um once you've decided we're going to do this and in every state the decision is we're going to have an election then that result is final and there's no going back and undoing it it also clarifies that the courts are supposed to sort out everything they're supposed to do uh, before the Electoral College meets, uh, which happens in mid-December, and they propose moving it back a little bit. Some people have, have proposed moving it back further, including us. But uh, in this proposal, it's still in mid-December. And, and so that means that that's the, that gives the courts a firm timeline for when they get to have their say. And then Congress on January 6th, when they meet in the joint session for the counting. Um, so it, it, it ends these kind of uh, muddled overlap where you can argue at certain periods of time, well, each of these actors might, both might have a say, and it's not clear who uh, really controls. As of
0: this recording, we are just under about two and a half years from Election Day 2024, which is when, uh, Andy, as you noted, the a fourth branch of government pops up, the Electoral College, once every four years, like a leap year, and does some work and then goes back home to be uh, party loyalists back in their home state. Um, What do you expect?
9: Yeah, I mean, this bill is definitely going to move forward here in the fall. Um, I mean, Congress is going home for their big August uh, recess here shortly, so it'll probably come back up after that. There's a possibility that there will be either changes or possibly a separate bill that then gets uh, reconciled coming out of the House. Um, Zoe Lofgren, who chairs the uh, relevant committee in the House, the Committee on House Administration, they've produced a very good report, and she has said that uh, her and Liz Cheney are working, and the January 6th committee might have some input and make some recommendations about this. Um, so we're probably looking at, at kind of further action in terms of the house and senate passing something and ironing out their differences uh, this this fall from sep, you know september october time frame is is probably what we're looking at
8: and i think one promising note is that this bipartisan group with collins and mansion does have nine republican senators in it um, so in theory you would just need one more republican <laughs> plus uh, the democratic side uh to overcome a filibuster but ideally it wouldn't even be that narrow or that partisan. This should be something that, that both parties, as Andy said, because they're behind the veil of ignorance, are should be equally supportive of.
0: Tommy Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Andy Craig is a staff writer at the Cato Institute. And if you have something you'd like us to discuss as a general matter on this Cato Audio exclusive segment, send it to us at CatoAudio at Cato.org. On September 8, 2022, the Cato Institute's 40th Annual Monetary Policy will take a look at the state of policy after 40 years. With a keynote address by Jerome H. Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve Board, leading scholars and policymakers will assess the Fed's performance over the last 40 years and assess the future of the institution. Register now to join us online on September 8th at Cato.org events. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Cable Brown. Talk to you again next month.